Hello and welcome to the second of our special editions of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast, in which we take a step back from the normal weekly cycle of news, market announcements and share price changes to provide a background primer on what investment trusts are, their special characteristics and why they are growing in popularity. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me, as always, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. In the first of the special podcasts, we looked in depth at the nature of Investment Trust, what they are, why they have grown in popularity, and some of their distinguishing features, as well as tackling the absolutely critical issue of discounts and premiums. To kick off the second part, I am going to ask Simon to start to explain to us what are alternative assets. Alternative assets have been one of the growth areas in the investment trust sector, and it's important to understand the distinction between them and other types of investment trust. Alternative asset classes, there's a whole range of them, basically. And I think the best way to think about these as a collective is going back to the point we made earlier about the underlying kind of flaw or the thing to be aware of with investment trust companies is the discount that invariably you buy something for an NAV, but you could get um, a a discount via the share price. So there has to be a good reason to put a pool of assets into a listed close-ended fund. And one of the, the good reasons to do that is because it's a less liquid asset class. So investment companies really do suit these less liquid asset classes, things that effectively you couldn't really access through an open-ended fund. So a good example of that would be uh, infrastructure, for example, where we've seen huge amounts of issuance and growth over the last 10 years. Private equity as well. We have a number of uh, investment trust companies that specialize in private equity. I right, give you exposure to a number of those uh, big names in the private equity sphere. Um, and we've also seen um, some more specialist debt funds come to the marketplace and uh, even, even very specialist type products. So we mentioned the Hypnosis Songs Fund as well. This idea of a, a range of assets that, frankly, you couldn't access through any other vehicle um, or certainly not through a readily available vehicle such as an open-ended fund. So that's where the listed close-ended fund really does come into its own, and that's where we've seen the growth over the last 10 years. I mean, one of the features of these alternative asset trusts is that their net asset value is harder to calculate. By their nature, they're not investing in things which are valued every day. It's more like property funds which are valued every quarter. So that does create a slight problem, does it not? I mean, how are these things valued? Who is making the decision on the valuations uh, and how reliable do you think they will be? You're right. Most investment trust companies will provide daily anything, frankly, for the generalists, the equity funds. And they are valued on what's called a mark-to-market basis. So they are effectively, they look at the underlying share prices of the portfolio companies and, and value accordingly. Now, with uh, some of those esoteric asset classes I mentioned, you can't do that. So they uh, revalue their portfolios periodically. It might be monthly, more likely to be every three months or every six months in some cases. And it can be done on a mark-to-model basis. So that's certainly true of infrastructure funds, generally speaking, where they look at the uh, cash flows of some of the underlying projects uh, or assets that they have. Uh, and they apply a discount to those cash flows to come up with a valuation in the here and now. Other asset classes, and it's probably worth mentioning commercial property as well, they will be valued uh, ordinarily in the same way as their open-ended equivalents. So um, that's subject to professional valuations. And there is a kind of mark-to-market uh, principle behind that. Obviously, they look at the property market. Clearly, a lot more difficult this year 
but there is a, a kind of recognized basis behind it. With private equity as well, th- there's quite a lot of guidance over valuation and how private equity should be valued. I mean, again, invariably, it's looking at the, the earnings of the underlying companies and then applying a comparable market multiple. So looking at what the similar company uh, but a public listed company, what that's trading on, uh, and then applying that rating, uh, albeit with a discount for illiquidity. So th- this whole process of valuing assets, it's a black hole uh, to go into, but there is a huge amount of process around it. I mean, there are industry standards that uh, most of these trusts are required or at least are expected to follow. And one of the jobs of the directors, obviously, is to try and uh, give themselves comfort that the valuations are fair and reasonable. But the implication is, uh, can't avoid the inference that Basically, the NAV that I might see in the newspaper or on a website is probably going to be out of date in some form Where when I look at it. It's only going to be on the day that they update their valuations that I actually see what they believe is the true NAV, and even then it will be backdated. So there is an element of trust involved here, is there not? I mean, as a shareholder, you have to believe that there are controls in place that these valuations are not uh, being uh, manipulated to the advantage of the investment management company. So again, just to be very clear, just on the normal long-only equity funds, they should be absolutely up-to-date valuations. But yes, on the specialist asset classes, you're right. Uh, And we've seen that this year with commercial property and private equity, particularly when that market sell-off in March and April, when these things went to very big discounts, but they were invariably big discounts to their values at the end of 2019. That was the latest valuation point. And clearly, the world had moved on considerably in that three or four month period. So we are now catching up with ourselves. We're starting to get more up-to-date NAV valuations. And what I would say on that is that the market is quite good at rationalizing what it thinks the realistic valuations of these more esoteric asset classes are. That's not to say they always get it right. But if you look at the share price of, say, a commercial property fund and it's trading out on, say, a 30 40% discount, there's probably a very good reason for that. And it might be that the valuation is uh, stale or there's some kind of belief that there might be a considerable fall in the NAV. So often why discounts do hint at uh, some kind of speculation or skepticism by the market that the, the NAV is entirely correct. So by the same token, it would be, uh, shall we say, um, politely naive to think that just because something is trading on a 50% discount, which doesn't very often happen, but there are some examples, that it must be an incredible bargain. That doesn't necessarily follow. I suppose we should be clear about that. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, you always find inefficient pricing. And that would be true, particularly on the, the really small investment trust companies that quite often fall off the radar of professional investors. But certainly on large, well-known investment trust companies, when they trade out on wide discounts, there's invariably a good reason that that would be the case. And also, if we look at things like the infrastructure funds, they will come to the market when they launch, they come to their market, and they tend to give a target rate of return. In other words, what they hope to make on an annualized basis each year. And that tends to be quite modest, uh, tends to be what sort of between five, 10%, that sort of thing. Uh, And most of that will be returned in the form of dividends, you hope as an investor. And then the price sort of adjusts to uh, produce the kind of yield that the market thinks a shareholder should be worth paying. Is that a fair summary? How does that work? How does that dynamic work? Well, I I think it's fair to say that infrastructure has been a very uh, popular sector, and that's evidenced by the fact that, not quite all, but the majority are trading on um, quite big premiums. Um, So certainly, if you look at renewable energy, infrastructure funds and Greencape UK Wind is probably a good example of that. But there are other funds of that nature trading out on 20% premiums to NAVs. 
Now, you could argue that that looks uh, expensive and, and you know some people probably would make that argument. But I think you're right that these investment companies yielding between 4 and 6% would probably a median of about 5 and they are being priced off those dividends. And again, to the point we made earlier, it, it, it's a marketplace where people are looking for sources of income. And if they believe they've found a source of income that is uncorrelated to the marketplace, in other words, um, you know, wind farms, for instance, uh, you shouldn't see the volatility that you have seen in the equity markets with buying exposure to wind farms. And equally, the dividends are covered by the cash flow generated by those wind farms, then you can see how people might get there in terms of the premium rating. So again, there's a reason why those things trade out on those big premiums. Yes, I mean, the wind doesn't stop blowing and the sun doesn't stop shining. Whatever happens to the global economy or the companies operating in it, though it may affect uh, the demand for their electricity, of course. So let's now talk about another very important subject, or at least has become very important, which is the subject of costs. We've mentioned those before in passing. And historically, we used to say that one of the other advantages investment trusts had was that they were cheaper than open-ended funds, precisely because they weren't allowed, as it happened, to pay this trail commission to financial advisors and others, which would typically would be something in the order of uh, half a percent per annum would go out in the form of trail commission to uh, intermediaries who had introduced a unit holder. But that's no longer the case because of RDR. So first of all, how do we go about assessing what the cost of ownership of an investment trust is? Uh, and then we'll look at how that compares to open-ended funds. So the, the kind of key cost or the largest element of cost with an investment trust company is invariably the annual management charge. So that's the fee paid to the investment manager for their services. And that can vary. Obviously, probably the cheapest that springs to mind is 0.3% or 30 basis points in the case of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust but uh, somewhere nearer to 1% is probably more in common. But then there are other fee elements as well. So there are some fixed costs involved in running a listed company. As you might expect, directors uh, take a fee, uh, however modest, I'm sure some people would argue. Uh, and there are also marketing and administration costs and all the rest of it. So one of the things that we look at is the ongoing charge ratio. And you can invariably find that in the annual report and accounts of every investment trust company, or you can find it on a fact sheet or on the AIC's website to compare how they stack up. I, th I think probably the key point and your comments about investment trust companies having an advantage over their open-ended equivalents because of costs was absolutely correct. But since RDR, we have seen a huge repricing of uh, the investment trust sector, and the direction of travel has been down. Uh, the boards, who are ultimately obviously independent of their fund managers, have been, certainly in my experience, very good at arguing for more and more or greater competitive charges and have driven those investment management fees down. And the other uh, characteristic that we've seen is the demise of the performance fee. You don't have to go back that many years when half the funds in the investment trust sector would have had some kind of performance fee arrangement. So basically, if in any particular year or over a rolling period, for instance, if there had been some sustained outperformance, then the investment manager would have uh, received greater reward. Now, there's still a few around, especially in the more specialist asset classes. But again, there are fewer and fewer of those. And, and personally, I think that is a mistake because my humble opinion on this is that uh, an investment manager does a good job. They should be rewarded and to incentivize them to outperform is probably no bad thing. Yes, it's a very uh, contentious issue that and there's arguments on both sides. I think that there's a more general point to make as well, which is that 
one of the reasons that both open-ended and closed-end funds are reducing their fees is because of the growing competition from index funds and, and passive funds. A passive fund, which just seeks to follow an index or a particular factor or style of investing, uh, they've grown hugely. They are hoovering up much more money these days than either open-ended funds or investment trusts. And therefore, everybody has to be competitive uh, against those because they tend to be cheaper. And it's generally, on the whole, I think a good thing that uh, uh, what we call active managers, those who are seeking to do better than uh, an equivalent index or benchmark would do, should be uh, forced to justify their existence. And it is worth making the point, I think, that all the investment trusts effectively are actively managed. There are no kind of passive investment trusts. There were a couple for a while, uh, but I think they've disappeared. So every investment trust has to earn its corn by doing better than any equivalent uh, passive fund. Would you accept that as a valid assessment of what's been going on? I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, one of the things that we, we talk about at Winterflood is that effectively investment trust companies provide a window into the investment management world. And you're absolutely right. Fees have come under huge scrutiny now for a number of years. And there has been competition from open-ended funds. And Again, a personal view, I, I think that the active uh, fund management industry is really making a mistake, effectively trying to compete on costs with regard to passive funds, because a passive fund index trackers, in other words, are always going to be the cheapest option. So I think it is a mistake. I think active management is an art. Uh, I think it's a long-term game. And I think there is good evidence that over the long term, and particularly in the investment trusts industry, where there are advantages, as discussed, with the closed-ended fund structure that good active managers can generate at a performance. That's such an important issue. I mean, let's just throw in for the moment one other factor, which is sometimes adduced as being uh, one of the advantages of investment trusts. It's certainly a distinguishing characteristic, and this is the use of what we call gearing. You mentioned that before, which is the ability to borrow money to enhance returns. That's a two-way street, though, isn't it, using gearing? So let's first of all just explain how investment trusts do use gearing, and then we might talk about whether or not that has been successful in uh, generating additional returns for investors. So first of all, how do investment trusts use gearing, the ability to borrow? So a number of investment trust companies, and certainly not all, but a number, are able or desire to uh, effectively have some form of borrowing. Uh, now, this might just be a revolving credit facility with uh, a well-known high street bank, say, or they might issue loan notes and effectively take advantage of what they would perceive to be cheap money uh, locked up for a number of years, um, or there are some more specialist forms of borrowing as well. And the idea is that by investing this borrowing in hopefully a rising asset class over time, that uh, assuming that you generate returns greater than the cost of, of the debt, then you add to returns. So at one stage, I think there was a perception that investment trust companies were just a geared play on the marketplace. Uh, and I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the average level of gearing uh, across certainly equity funds, so the kind of more mainstream funds, probably between 5 and 10% would be the kind of bandwidth that you would expect. It can be more in some cases. In other cases, some investment trusts never have deployed gearing because uh, I mean, an example would be something like the JP Morgan Emerging Market Fund, where the manager there takes the view that emerging markets are invariably risky enough. So why deploy gearing to, to increase that risk? So different fund managers and different asset classes take different views. But one of the areas where it has been uh, quite popular is on the equity income space. 
And again, this idea that if you borrow money, particularly at those very low rates that you mentioned, uh, and can invest it in equities that generate dividends higher than that rate, there's effectively something called a carry trade, the difference between what you're paying and what you're generating. And that adds to those equity income revenue accounts and, and is one of the reasons why they can offer higher dividends over time. Yes, that's an important point. Just explain the difference between, as I say, the two types of borrowing. Mainly there's kind of what we call structural and flexible or whatever you like to call it. And some trusts, as you say, they uh, effectively have permanent gearing and others have, they sort of dip in and dip out. Is there any evidence as to which of those two methods is more successful or is it just a case that it's, as always, horses for courses and you need to do your homework to try and work out if, if it has been effective or not? I think it's the latter. I mean, we had the example of J.P. Morgan Claverhouse recently who de-geared going into the uh, sell-off this year and then deployed their gearing, so actually borrowed to take advantage of what they perceived to be cheap share prices and then have reduced their gearing a bit subsequently. So, you know, that's quite flexible use of gearing. Other people will just say, no, we're going to deploy whatever it is, 5% or 10% of net assets as gearing, uh, and we'll just kind of run that. Because over the long term, without wishing to time the market, we believe that that will generate value. I mean, there are issues with gearing. Um, I mean, one of the things to note is, as you mentioned, in a falling market, uh, falling uh, asset class values, then that gearing will harm performance and will creep up as a percentage of net assets. And if it becomes extreme, then you could start to have implications for debt covenants. Uh, We haven't seen that for a number of years. The financial crisis in 2008 was probably the last time we saw mainstream investment trusts get into those kind of waters. So I think think gearing is seen as as one of the tools in the kit bag of an investment trust manager uh, and used, in my experience, relatively modestly. But it's always worth being aware of what the policy is and how it's been used in any particular case. One particular change, it might be worth just mentioning quickly, is a number of investment trusts still have some very expensive borrowing they took out uh, many years ago when they thought that surprisingly it now seems that something like 7 or 8% or even more was a good rate at which to borrow because that was reflecting the current rate of interest uh, around the marketplace. This would be in the 1990s, I guess. And they took out fixed coupon debt effectively. They borrowed at a fixed rate of you know so much per annum. Uh, and some of them have still got those uh, what we call debentures. But most investment trusts have paid those off now, I think, and substitute, as you say, uh, much, much cheaper, either overdraft type facilities or different kinds of arrangements where the interest rates are much lower. But can you give an example of a trust which has still got some long-term debentures? I think Scottish Mortgage is one of them, isn't it? Scottish Mortgage will have, to be fair, Scottish Mortgage investment trust has grown hugely. So it has a number of different borrowing sources, debt sources on its balance sheet, of which some longer-term debentures will, will be just one. And it'd be a very small part of uh, its balance sheet now because of that growth. Probably uh, another example would be Scottish American, uh, also in the Betty Gifford stable, known as Saints. Uh, and it has a debenture that is coming to the end of its life. I think it's April 2022, so less than two years to go now. Uh, and I suspect the board of that particular investment trust are probably counting down the days because not quite double digit coupon rate, probably around 7 8% off the top of my head. But again, by today's standards, uh, very expensive. But you're right, there are a number of those debentures kind of floating around. But they're reasonably you know, far and few between now. We're drawing to the end now, Simon, but there's a couple more questions I want to, uh, to throw at you, if I may. The first concerns essentially the, the size of the investment trust sector and the kind of ebb and flow of new versus old names in the investment trust sector. As we mentioned, there have been a lot of newcomers to the sector in recent years, particularly in this alternative 
asset space with new types of asset class to invest in, like infrastructure, renewable energy, and so on. But also, of course, investment trusts do disappear. And I think uh, we in the investment trust business would like to think that the rate and the uh, consistency with which investment trust disappears is actually a strength of the sector rather than a weakness. But perhaps you could explain how it is that uh, the number of investment trusts uh, continues to grow, but equally it doesn't grow as fast as the number of newcomers to the sector because there are other trusts which are going out of business in one form or another uh, along the way. Can you perhaps explain uh, how that Darwinian process works, if you like. There is a, absolutely a Darwinian aspect to the investment trust sector. And I think it's fair to say that it comes in and out of favour a little bit, certainly over its 150-year-plus uh, history. There have been times when investment trust companies have really proven uh, their worth and, and addressed the need. And I would argue that that's kind of where we've been at over the last 10 years or so. And equally, there have been periods when uh, these things have been a little bit unloved. But you're right, there is an ebb and flow. I mean, just to put some numbers around that, since the financial crisis, so 2008-9, uh, we've seen over 100 different investment companies launched, being brought to the marketplace, and probably not dissimilar number uh, disappeared during that time as well. And again, to my comments earlier about a window into the investment management world, there are certain asset classes that, going back to the noughties, seemed very much uh, in favour. Fund of hedge funds are probably one, one asset class that was very much in vogue. Uh, unfortunately, didn't perform too well during the, uh, the sell-off in the, the financial crisis, and as a result, have largely disappeared. But then we've seen other asset classes, such as infrastructure, grow hugely as well. So as mentioned earlier, there has to be a good reason to use the listed closed-ended fund structure. It doesn't suit all asset classes. But I think this desire for income really has led people down to look for more specialist asset classes. And that's where investment companies have, in terms of a structure, have really come into their own. So essentially, the city of London has always been very good at providing investors with what they want or think they want anyway. Uh, and I think it works in investment trust just as in, uh, as in the, the main market itself. There's never any shortage of uh, supply when there's a perceived demand out there. But we haven't talked about uh, sectors and benchmarks much. Uh, let's just briefly touch on those because the uh, investment trust sector is classified into different sectors. And as you pointed out, some sectors tend to be flavor of the month and they have uh, a lot of new issues. Other sectors tend to be go out of favor like the hedge fund of hedge funds uh, and they largely but not totally disappear. First of all, who decides which sector an investment trust goes into? And uh, do you think that actually putting them into sectors is of much value to investors? So the industry standard is set by a very august body called the AIC Statistics Committee which at this stage I put my hand up and say I am a member of, uh, and they meet periodically three or four times a year and kind of judge on which would be the most appropriate subsector for a particular investment trust company to sit in. And I think it is important. I think it is very important, actually. And uh, it's, it's fair to say that in terms of the different subsectors across the investment trust space, that there's a desire to kind of mirror their open-ended equivalents wherever possible. Clearly, there are some asset classes that exist in the investment trust world that don't exist in open-ended funds. But as a general point, I think that is quite important. So people can compare on a subsector basis investment trust companies with open-ended funds. I think it is important because I think even though within, say, the global sector, there will be a whole range of investment strategies, of different investment styles, different sizes, different approaches – that to kind of put them together as a collective and see who is performing at any one moment in time, I think is helpful. Effectively, as a fund selector, I certainly find it helpful. 
And you can find that information on the AIC's website, actually. They, they have all that uh, performance data on a subsector basis there. So you too can compare how different investment trust companies are performing compared with their most immediate peers. Uh, I knew I'd come to the right person for that question, Simon, since uh, you're on the relevant committee. But just in very broad terms, I mean, which, uh, which sectors have done best over, over, say, the last 10 years and uh, which have done uh, less well? Is that a fair question to ask you? Without having the data to my fingertips, uh, I would imagine that if 10 years ago you'd bet on overseas markets, particularly the US, particularly kind of global as a pot, you would have done very well. Um, on a thematic basis, if you'd have backed technology and healthcare, you'd have done very well. Conversely, if you'd have gone down the UK route, then you would have struggled, certainly on a relative basis. The UK has been a difficult market, particularly in the last five years, I think. It's for various reasons that, um, frankly, there's probably not enough time to go into now. But for those investors that decide to keep their money at home, um, they've probably seen better returns elsewhere. I think that's fair to say. Yes, I mean, the, the FTSE index, the FTSE 100 index is lower than it was in the year 2000, uh, for example. Of course, there have been dividends and so on, so it's not a strictly fair comparison, but it's an indicator of how poorly the UK market has done in relative terms. Uh, but we might just finish by saying that, of course, the distinguishing feature of the investment trust sector has been the fact that it, A, has always been dominated, if you like, by uh, essentially global or non-UK investment trusts. There's always been a significant proportion of those. Uh, and secondly, of course, now, since the arrival of these alternative assets, it's become even more diversified in terms of the type of investment trust that you can buy into as a shareholder. And as it so happens, those have been two good things from an investor's point of view in the last six months, certainly, but also over the last few years, as you've said. To have a portfolio which is globally diversified and is uh, across um, not just uh, equity markets, but also across other types of assets has been very much the right place to be. And I think we can certainly quantify that effect so far this year anyway, can we not? No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you go back in the midst of time and midst of history to 1868 and the launch of FNC Investment Trust. I mean, that was effectively uh, an emerging market vehicle, emerging market bond vehicle back in that time. And, and the idea behind it was to give investors of modest means the benefits or allow them to enjoy the benefits of being a larger investor. So it was quite an egalitarian aspect at the very launch of the industry back there. But yes, I think there's always been a view within the investment trust industry to, to look away from the home market, to look at uh, more developing uh, asset classes. And you know, to say the investment trust industry is at the cutting edge of the investment management world, that probably feels a little bit of a stretch, frankly. Um, but uh, it's not altogether untrue as well. So just in conclusion, then, we've covered a lot of ground in these podcasts. But I just wanted to uh, finish by, first of all, thanking you for your erudition and uh, advice on these issues, but also to ask you whether you think, how do you think the investment trust sector stands in terms of where it is and where it might be going? Is it in good health or is it in uh, poor health? Where does it sit in that spectrum? Well, I think at the start of the year, we said that the investment trust sector had never had it so good. And that tempted fate slightly by the uh, the biggest sell-off we've seen since 2008-9, or certainly the biggest derating. But um, no, I, I would still stand by those comments. I think the investment trust sector uh, still has a lot to offer investors for the reasons that we've discussed. I think there is a, an innovative aspect of it. And the fact that it's attracted in retail investors looking for whatever reasons, uh, you know, maybe growth or it might be income. I think it's changing the nature of the sector considerably, actually. And I think investment trust boards and uh, the fund management groups who are responsible uh, for running these portfolios investment trusts, I think they absolutely appreciate the opportunity set that exists 
for the wider industry in really providing uh, investors with something a little bit different in terms of their investment options. So I would sum up the case as, uh, okay, there is more complexity. It takes a little bit more effort to understand the investment track sector, but you get rewards in terms of, uh, I would certainly suggest, I think you would agree, uh, better governance and uh, over time, certainly evidence of better performance when you compare like for like across investment trusts and open-ended funds. And of course, the uh, ability to feel that you actually uh, can participate in the ownership of your investments and uh, hopefully they're going to serve you well over time. So that's all we've got time for in these uh, podcasts. I hope you found them useful. Our regular weekly podcast will be coming back uh, when we get back from holiday, uh, assuming we're allowed back, or even if we're not, we can still do it via Zoom. So thank you all very much for listening. And thank you, Simon, for guiding us through this uh, fascinating subject. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.